three dozen men commanded a corps in the Army of the Potomac at one time or another. We'll find out who was the best and who was the worst with Stephen Tate, author of Commander and Commanding the Army of the Potomac, when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Writers Wanted, at the 6th Annual La Jolla Writers Conference, October 20 through 22, 2006, where New York Times best-selling authors, editors, agents, publicists, screenwriters, and poets will help you find your voice and perfect your craft. Get feedback on your work from New York Times bestsellers James Gripondo, Linda Leo Miller, Steve Barry, Margaret Weiss, Catherine Ryan Hyde, and a host of other outstanding authors. Participate in read and critique classes with renowned literary agents and editors and know that you can later submit to them on a first-name basis. Hone your screenwriting skills with Alan Russell and Warren Lewis, the writer of Black Rain, The 13th Warrior, and other movies, and find out what it takes to get your small press book on the shelves of Barnes & Noble with Marcella Smith of their New York office and Jan Nathanson of PMA. Whether you write fiction or nonfiction, whether you're looking to jumpstart your writing career or simply hone your craft, join the unique writing community of the La Jolla Writers Conference October 20th through 22nd. For more information, check us out at LaJollaWritersConference.com or call 858-467-1978. The La Jolla Writers Conference, turning writers into authors and authors into bestsellers. You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from East Carolina University. With our guest today, Dr. Stephen Tafe, author of Commanding the Army of the Potomac. It's a study of the men who commanded the corps and the army itself through that army's very interesting career. In our last segment, we were discussing what happened to Hooker at Chancellorsville. We talked about what happened to McClellan uh, in the campaign before that, Antietam, uh, touched on Burnside. We talked about Army commanders a lot, but I wanted to return to the subject of the the people at the next level down, the ones who execute the Army commander's orders, the the Corps commanders. You've got maybe 10,000 men in a Corps. Is that a fair estimate? 10,000, 15,000 usually, give or take. So it's a very responsible command. It's a, you've got usually three divisions under your control if you're running a corps. Uh, let's ask one of those Monday morning quarterback-type questions that uh, serious scholars are not supposed to ask, but who was the best corps commander in the Army of the Potomac? Uh, that's a lot harder than picking out the worst ones. Um, <laughs> Hancock is a good corps commander. Of course, Hancock most famous um, performances at Gettysburg, but he also fought well at the Wilderness, and he fought well at Spotsylvania. So Hancock is up there, but there are some other ones that, that people haven't heard of, who in my opinion performed pretty well, particularly towards the end of the war. Uh, Andrew Humphreys, who will command the Second Corps after Hancock leaves the Army. Uh, he was a good Corps commander. Uh, Henry Slocum, who commanded the Twelfth Corps earlier in the war, Slocum had a pretty good record as well. Um, John Reynolds often gets a lot of credit, but he really didn't 
have much of an opportunity to demonstrate his ability until Gettysburg. And, of course, at Gettysburg, he's, he's, he's killed just as he's riding off into battle. But I, I would go with, which is probably the majority opinion, and say Hancock's probably the outstanding Army of the Potomac Corps commander. Uh, so none of them date back to the early days of the war. What about uh, Phil Phil Kearney? Well, Kearney never made it to Corps Command. Uh, he, how well he would have performed as a Corps Commander, I'm not sure. He's a good divisional commander because he's a straight-up, hard-fighting guy. Uh, and had he been a Corps Commander, I'm not sure he would have done as well as he did at the lower ranks. And uh, I guess Isaac Stevens is another one who didn't get a chance to exercise corps command right. uh, uh, he was killed also but he also was uh, someone who might have done extraordinary extremely well and then you get some people like uh, hooker who we talked about in the previous segment who really do well at corps command and he will go on to do well out west after he's demoted from the army leadership position uh, it's sort of the peter principle where you get promoted to your level of incompetence and once they've, you're at a level where you can't do the job, uh, that's that's in bad organizations. That's where you stay forever uh, until everybody's at the level where they can't do what they're supposed to do. Hooker had the opportunity to go back down to Corps Command, and, and he did all right. Um, what about the worst Corps Commander? Uh, again, there's a lot to choose from there, though my personal favorite would probably be William French, who commanded the Third Corps, in the uh, uh, summer and fall of 1863, and French's problem was that he was an alcoholic who was drinking way too much at that point, and uh, to read some of the accounts, he was becoming pretty much incoherent at times, and um, the, the officers understood this and, and, of course, resented it because they knew what a threat that, that French uh, posed to them. So I think French is up there. Uh, First Corps commander, John Newton, who was also right after the Gettysburg campaign, commanded that corps. He didn't do too well either. Uh, Daniel Sickles doesn't perform that wonderfully. He's a third corps commander. Uh, Well, alternatively, he won the battle with his bold and daring advance on the second day at Gettysburg. Uh, You sound like a radical Republican. (laughs) (laughs) So on on that question, on on Sickles' movement at Gettysburg, you come down on the, the side that that was not the right thing to do. I think it's Hancock who said that um, when he sees Sickles' whole corps moving out into the wheat field and the peach orchard, uh, somebody says, you know, what do you think they're doing? And Hancock says, just wait a minute, they'll come tumbling back. And of course they do. While we're talking about Gettysburg, there was a recent series of articles in North and South magazine by Robert Himmer where he argues that Meade's role... Uh, as Army of the Potomac commander at Gettysburg has often been, it's traditionally been misinterpreted. We we typically see Meade as fighting a defensive battle. He goes to Gettysburg, he gets word from Reynolds and from Buford that this is a good place to fight. So he brings the army there, defends his ground, and thus defeats Lee, which no one else uh, leading that army could do. And afterward, he makes it seem as if that's what he planned all along, go there and and use the advantage of the defense to win the battle. Now, in these articles, uh, we hear the argument that, in fact, Meade planned to attack at Gettysburg, and he went there fully intending to throw his army forward. 
are you familiar with this this uh, theory, or do you know? Of, did you come across anything in your research on me that would suggest perhaps he was planning to attack? Uh, well, as as he got my impression was that Lee wanted to fight along Pipe Creek in northern Maryland, and when Reynolds forces his hand by moving up there, uh, Meade is going to go up there after Hancock says that's the place to go because remember. Reynolds has command of the 1st Corps and the 3rd Corps and the 11th Corps all under his general direction. So he commits the army, um, well, not against Meade's wishes, but certainly it wasn't something Meade was planning on doing. And uh, I don't think that Meade really had a plan when he went up there except to see what was going on and then be uh, and then act according to circumstances. So informally, Reynolds is really commanding a wing of the army. He's got several corps under his command. Yes, he does. Now, there's a, kind of a technical question here, but it's something I wonder about. Robert E. Lee's army, the Army of Northern Virginia, at Gettysburg has three corps commands. You've got Longstreet, Hill, and Ewell. And before that, it was just two with Jackson and Longstreet. The Army of the Potomac is larger, but it's not that much larger. Yet at Gettysburg, there are seven separate infantry corps that report directly to Meade. Why? Why are there? Which, which army has the better setup? Is, is Lee's army underorganized, or is Meade's army overorganized? Um, I think that Lee's army has the better setup. And originally, in the Union Army, the corps were supposed to be twenty, twenty-five thousand men. But remember, during the Peninsula Campaign, McClellan is going to take advantage of that order he gets from Lincoln to take the three corps in the Peninsula and expand them to five for his own for his own purposes to get his own people in important command positions. In doing that, though, he dilutes the power of these corps. And one of the problems that the Union Army will have throughout much of the war is they have too many of these understrength corps. There are too many corps that are too small. When they reach 15,000, they're doing, they're doing well. And that's just not, that doesn't provide the corps with enough punch to get the job done. But combining them is politically difficult to do because soldiers form an attachment to their corps. And of course, in the spring of 1864, uh, Meade, understanding that the corps need to have more power to them, will indeed consolidate his, I think he has five corps at the time, he's going to consolidate them into three, and he will get rid of the first corps and the third corps, which causes a real howl in the Army of the Potomac because so many soldiers had such a deep attachment to these two particular corps. In fact, Meade will let them continue to wear their core badges, even though they're now in new cores. Um, so, so the Confederates have the right strategy, and the Union doesn't do it for political reasons, or they don't do it until later in the war, in, in the spring of 1864, they finally get cores that have 20,000 men and are capable of inflicting the kind of damage that they need to inflict. So this really all stems, though, from McClellan's original decision to to add new organizations to the Army, not for military strictly military reasons but to to allow him to put his own people in place right so that initial decision to appoint four commanders has ramifications that last throughout the war that's, that's an interesting exactly right interesting thought there in in my research on the army of the ohio the, the first army of the ohio the one under buell in 1862 my conclusion was that the army performed as badly as it did because of the esprit de corps, the individual regiments, that the men's loyalty was limited 
really to the regimental level, and they never developed what the Army of the Potomac had, that core loyalty. But the result was that the, that the these men fought bravely for their core or for their regiment uh, in the Western case, but you could say in the Army of the Potomac they fight loyally for their core, for their individual commanders. And thus it's impossible to dislodge an army, to fully defeat an army like the Army of the Potomac, to, to break it up like Napoleon's army is broken up at Waterloo. Uh, they're just too resilient. They're too loyal. Uh, and, and, and every Civil War army is that way. Lee's army is that way. Uh, Bragg's army is that way. Johnson's, all the Johnson's armies are that way. And so we don't see an army ever broken up on the battlefield. And it wouldn't matter who's commanding the Corps. It just isn't going to happen. What, uh, how do you respond to that? proposal. Well, I think you're absolutely right. Civil War armies are almost indestructible in that the opposing army simply can't harness sufficient firepower to break it up. The only, the only instance I can think where you can even make the argument that a Civil War army is destroyed on the battlefield might be the Battle of Nashville with Hood's army. Exactly. But even that, you can question it because some of those guys end up in North Carolina fighting against Sherman. Uh, what I think makes the Army of the Potomac a little bit different is, as you mentioned, they do have this loyalty to the core that you don't see in other Union armies. And I think a big reason for that is uh, Daniel Butterfield. Butterfield was Hooker's chief of staff, and in an effort to raise morale amongst the Army of the Potomac after the Battle of Fredericksburg in uh, early 1863, Butterfield comes up with this idea of distributing badges for each corps. And he draws up a badge for each one, I think a circular, a circle for the first corps, and for the second corps, it's a clover. And the soldiers will, will put, these, um, put these patches or badges on their uniforms, on their wagons, and they put them everywhere. And that really works. It gives the uh, soldiers some kind of identity with their corps. Uh, that you don't have in any other army. And even later on when some of the other Union armies do start to pick up this idea of core badges and identifying their men with the core, they never have the same loyalty that it does in the uh, in the Army of the Potomac. And, and the 12th Corps, which was an Army of the Potomac unit, the badge was a star. And when the 12th Corps was transferred out uh, west uh, in late 1863, one Western soldier looked at it and said, are all you guys brigadier generals? <laughs> They've all got the white star. The... Uh, so it is a unique army, certainly the Army of the Potomac in that way. Is there a good biography of Dan Butterfield? Uh, not that I'm aware of. I know his, uh, I think it's his daughter wrote up something, uh, a biography with a lot of his letters are in it. Uh, but since then, I'm not aware of any biography of Butterfield. I'm, I'm trying to think if I've seen one recently. There's certainly a character there who... Uh, appears like a sort of shadow across the histories of the Army of the Potomac and always in the right place or the wrong place. Uh, uh, it seems like an intriguing character, somebody worth writing about. Let me ask you uh, a question I often ask people on the show. If you could go back uh, to the Civil War for an hour, assured of your safety uh, and safe return, who would you like to meet in that one hour you could spend in the 1860s? Well, I hate to give the cliche answer, but I guess it would probably be Lincoln. Uh, I'll disqualify Lincoln. That's a good answer. I, I, I worked at the Lincoln Museum in Fort Wayne for many years. I'm writing about Lincoln. Uh, I guess we'd all like to do that. Let, let's push it another level down. Uh, Grant or Sherman? I'll just I'll pick Sherman. Well. 
you wouldn't get a word in edgewise, but it would be an interesting hour, I bet. That's true. Wow. Well, unfortunately, our words uh, are ending as I hear the music one more time, suggesting we're, we're at the end of our hour all too soon. But I want to recommend to our listeners that for a new approach to well-worn ground, uh, you will enjoy reading Commanding the Army of the Potomac by Stephen R. Tafe, who has been our guest today. Stephen, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. And listeners, thank you for joining us this week on Civil War Talk Radio. Mm-hmm.